Welcome to Privacy by Design, the cybersecurity and regulatory podcast. Brought to you by Partners in Regulatory Compliance. Now, here's your host, Dan Howry. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Howry, and with me today is cybersecurity expert Jeff Miller and Michael Feldman, attorney at law and co-founder of the New Jersey-based law firm Olinger Feldman. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. Um, as you guys know, uh, today's topic is Chief Information uh, Officer as a Service. Um, so, Jeff, we'll just jump right into it. Jeff, what is uh, Chief Information Security Officer uh, or CISO, as we've been commonly uh, referring to it? What, what, what is a CISO and what are they responsible for? All right, so a CISO is the person who is in charge of or responsible for the overall security strategy of an organization. And uh, CISOs aren't in every organization, but it makes sense for companies that are growing, companies that have a lot of employees, uh, companies that have a lot of risk. So the CISO is the person who, who whose ultimate goal is to uh, stri- strategically plan uh, how to uh, identify and reduce risk within a company uh, and also remediate that risk. And they may not be doing that themselves, oftentimes they're not, but they're, they're the leader who's sort, sort of holding the strings. Um, and they're gonna report to uh, key stakeholders, both internal and external, on their efforts to reduce risk. So they're, they're typically not under a CIO, but side by side with a CIO, and they would sit at the table with the, with the whole C-suite. So their responsibility, again, is just the strategy of, of finding and reducing risk on a continual basis for a company. Gotcha. Gotcha. What does this type of person make in terms of salary range? So if you're in a regulated business and you do need a chief information security officer, what would you say is the full-time salary like in this New York tri-state area? What does that look like? Okay, so in this area, uh, being a metro area, the base salary is going to be higher than other areas in the country. So I did actually recently look it up for this, uh, this uh, video that we're doing today. And on, according to salary.com, the base salary range for a full-time CISO in the tri-state area is going to be between just over 200 k a year and upwards of a quarter million dollars. So about the, the ceiling on that was 263 k per year. So, which is surprising. People don't realize that that is, in fact, a going rate for, for CISOs in our area. Um, if we took the whole United States uh, in, into play, um, the entire U.S., not, not including bonuses, healthcare, or retirement benefits, the base salary for CISOs uh, across the board is 218k. So, no matter how you cut it, it's, it's over $200,000 uh, base. Uh, so, uh, it's uh, definitely a, a very important role, but definitely an expensive role as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, uh, and, and I guess as, as uh, Michael can attest to this, and, and I know I can, as a small business owner, then when you add benefits, uh, vacation, all that other stuff, uh, the, the overhead, and all that, of course, that number probably climbs higher, right? I mean, it's, it's fair to say. Yeah. Uh-huh. We, 
We typically yeah, consider ahead. about 25 to 30% extra for all that overhead when you're talking about an employee. Yeah, yeah. My rule of thumb is, is a minimum of 20% added to that. Right. And uh, Michael, while we're on the subject here um, of security, of course, you hold the CIPP certification, which is something that I'm personally interested in. Can you just give us a little background on what CIPP is and, and what that's all about. Sure. CIPP stands for Certified Information Privacy Professional. It's a certification granted through the IAPP, or International Association of Privacy Professionals. I know I hate to throw around all the initials out there, but it's the way <laughs> it are. So the IAPP basically with several thousand members is considered the largest uh, organization of privacy professionals in the world. There's, it's, it brings together professionals such as me, lawyers, as well as technical experts in privacy, security, et cetera. The program itself to get certified requires you to learn about the privacy laws in your uh, geographic areas. There's one for the US, they're separate for Europe. The laws there are obviously different, even though as uh, some people may know, and maybe we'll get to later, the laws are starting to overlap between Europe and the United States. At the end of the day, you take a test to make sure that you actually understand not only what the laws are, but how to apply the laws to practical situations that arise every day and ultimately you're required to uh, continue with 12 hours of continuing legal education or continuing privacy education each year to make sure that you are up to date uh, at what's going on in the world of privacy. Interesting, yeah, I'm sure that one's gonna be getting much more popular. Um, how long have you held that particular designation? Good question, I wanna say six years, six or so years. It was much smaller and less common when I started with the IAPP and the CIPP program. Now, more and more organizations are coming out as what used to be the world of privacy was kind of small. Most people didn't know much about it outside of HIPAA is now becoming commonplace and something that just about every business has to deal with on a daily basis. Absolutely, so that kind of brings me into a good segue for my next question. From my vantage point here, you know, living living cybersecurity every day, um, the the environment seems to be, or at least the consensus is that the environment is becoming more strict or more complex as time goes on, and we turn everything digital. Um, do you agree? And and if so, uh, why do you think that is? Well, I I guess there are two separate questions that are about strict and complex. The simple answer is the strict part. Yes, the laws are becoming more strict. The courts and the laws are giving more credence and credibility to the privacy rights of individuals, which then impact any business out there pretty much, because almost every business ultimately deals with individuals, whether it's internal with human resources or external with your clients, customers, etc. So that's kind of the simple part. The more difficult part, perhaps, is the complexity. And yes, they're becoming more complex. To understand a little bit about the complexity, you have to look at the US model, which I presume we're talking about most versus the European model. The European model starts with the concept that all personal information is private unless there's a law that says otherwise. 
And then Europeans tend to have unified laws, such as the more recently enacted uh, GDPR as May 2018. But starting with that concept that everything's private, it's a little easier to figure out than what isn't. The U.S. is far more complex and getting even more so. And the U.S. start with the general presumption that nothing is private unless a law says it is. But to add to the level of complexity here, instead of simply having laws that say this information is private and this information isn't private or what we can do with it, we have laws and regulations at the federal level, then the state level, then the local level. And to make things a little more complicated over that, we also have industry specific rules, whether it's finance, healthcare, et cetera. And then we have certain um, non-binding certain industries agree internally to follow so you can comply with general industry standards. And then on top of all of that, you have contractual obligations, some of which require you to comply with uh, certain laws, whether or not they would otherwise apply to you, and certain contractual obligations that create independent uh, privacy and security obligations. So you need to be aware of all of them. And I give people an example of some of the complexities that can pop up. Where I had a case involving two doctors, one left the practice, the other doctor sued, said, you took my customers. The first step was to determine, did the customers go to the new doctor? The court is an experienced judge who's been on the bench for probably 20 or 25 years, said, hand over the customer list. You can keep it confidential, or excuse me, the patient list. Keep it confidential, we'll sign a confidentiality order, but turn over the patient list to the other side so we can see if we do in fact have overlapping patients. Ultimately, that was reversed. So why was it reversed? Because under HIPAA, it says you could do that. HIPAA being the federal regulation govern uh, generally medical records, physician uh, patient connections. But New Jersey has a more strict patient privilege statute. That statute said, you can't turn over those records. Once that was brought to the judge's attention, who had no clue, the judge said, you're right, the records can't be turned over, and ultimately the case was dismissed. Prior to bringing that to the court's attention, I talked to various healthcare experts who weren't really sure about it. To be honest, I wasn't really sure about it. So if you take it outside the realm of, in that case, attorneys and healthcare experts and tried to deal with a situation like that, which for businesses could be simply the interaction between the physician-patient privilege and HIPAA, you would be lost. So these types of overlaps are now occurring more and more and more as more states and more industries are creating their own privacy rules and regulations. Excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, that, that is a great response and a great example of how regulations and contracts and everything kind of intertwine to create complexity sometimes. Um, so that, that can't be understated. Jeff, you've been trained in, in a lot of these different areas. How does an organization know when it's time to create this chief information security officer role uh, or the, or just employ the services of a CISO as a service? 
Yeah, good question. So, first of all, many organizations are mandated by law to have a CISO role. So when you're mandated, you don't have a choice. That's just uh, that's just something you have to do. Um, so whether in-house or outsourced, uh, some people do choose to outsource the role. Uh, that can be less expensive, obviously, than hiring a full-time employee. Like we talked about earlier, you're looking at a quarter of a million dollars, essentially. Um, so examples of, of some verticals that tend to have uh, CISO roles are banking, insurance, financial institutions, particularly in New York State, thanks to the, the relatively new Department of Financial Services cybersecurity regulation. Uh, so in New York State, or anybody licensed in New York, even if they're in New Jersey or some other state, um, within banking, insurance, and financial, they have to have a CISO. Um, other companies that choose to hire a CISO uh, do so shortly after they go public or before they go public just to, to manage that. Oftentimes, investors want to see that their money is invested in a company with sound, uh, a sound cybersecurity vision and approach. Uh, and I, there was a sports uh, medicine company that I worked with recently in New Jersey, and they were just about to get acquired. So they sort of hurried up and got all this stuff in place where we did a, a security assessment, some written policies for them around their IT and their cybersecurity. Because the, the people who were going to acquire them, they didn't want to acquire a risky business. So that was a case where it made sense to have that kind of work done. So the fact is many small and medium businesses can't afford, uh, and it may, may not make sense, obviously, for a 10-person uh, you know, shop to, have, to employ a full-time CISO. That just simply is not financially feasible. Uh, but that, that's why outsourcing that role to, to a cybersecurity firm as a fractional CISO is sometimes more appropriate. So um, anybody, any, the, I guess to, to tie it up, um, anybody who wants to reduce risk, maintain their reputation, and avoid the expensive downtime associated with breaches should consider um, either a full-time CISO, uh, if they can afford it and they're large enough, or uh, an outsourced uh, fractional CISO to a cybersecurity firm. Awesome. Yeah, a lot of times we um, remind clients to, um, you know, when they're doing their, <clears throat> excuse me, when they're doing their risk analysis, to of course also not forget uh, reputation cost, right? Because because that's huge. Michael, is there any, anything you want to add to that? Uh, a couple things. First is the concept of privacy by design, which is the idea companies are latching onto more and more of developing your business, all aspects of it around the concept of privacy. And when I say privacy, we're talking the rules, regulation, security, everything that goes with it. And CISO fits into that role, whether again, full-time, part-time, inside, outsourced, in protecting your business. And the best way to avoid getting into problems, having lawsuits, sanctions, fines, whatever the case might be, um, if you're in a regulated industry or not, is to organize the entity correctly in the first place. Now we see most businesses, only larger businesses, have an HR department or head of HR, which is a newer concept. 50 years ago, you didn't have that generally, but people saw there was a benefit to having a head of HR or an HR department to make sure that the HR rule regulations and concepts were integrated into a business. Now, I kind of view the concept of a CISO, security, uh, privacy, legal team, all in place, 
integrated with the business. It's kind of like the HR department used to be. And I think we'll see that happening more and more. Some may resist it. I think it's inevitable. And I think as a general matter, it's a sound investment for your business to make sure things are done right up front. In addition to that, um, as I mentioned earlier, as of May 25th, 2018, uh, the a Privacy Act called the GDPR, or General Data Protection Regulation, came into effect in the EU. While people watching this perhaps or businesses in the US think that's a European thing that doesn't affect me, the regulation was written in such a way that it affects anybody in essence who targets any business in the EU or collects any personal data from anyone in the EU. That could include having a website where you have the little link at the top so you can change the language to French, to Spanish, to German. It may be a, a website that uh, you sell your product to people over there. And how is that indicated you know, for your own records too? If you click on the shipping icon or shipping information, people often have international orders in there. Any of that, even if your entire business is located in the US, is impacted by GDPR and you're subject to sanctions, fines, penalties, and lawsuits for lack of compliance. It's a pretty complex regulation. It is a big regulation. The fines can be based upon your worldwide revenue, not just your revenue. Uh, in connection with business in the EU. And if you really think, well, I don't need to worry about that because I'm just in the US and I just do business in the US. California recently passed its own Consumer Privacy Act uh, just probably a month or two ago. While it doesn't come into effect until 2020, and will certainly be some tweaks to it, that law will be coming it takes a long time to get ready for it. It's not something that you can do overnight. I'm still work with companies involved in GDPR who are trying to get compliant now because they didn't start until May. It's not a simple process. That's something a CISO and having a team in place can certainly help with. And my guess is California is not going to be the last state to implement such rules. I think you'll probably see it in the same way you've seen laws with respect to uh, biometrics started generally the big first one was in Illinois and in other states followed. So I think it's inevitable that it's going to happen here. And while you can wait and be more passive, you can also use compliance as part of your marketing strategy as well as simply a defensive mechanism. Got it, got it. So, so what you're essentially saying is, <clears throat> If I, excuse me, if I stand up a website and potential customers, I could be located here in the U.S., but if I sell widgets or, and I stand up a website and sell those widgets and potential customers are in Europe, I have a GDPR obligation. You, you, I'd actually take it a step further than that. You don't even have to sell them the widget. If these people are coming to your website, and your website collects information, whether it's more passively, passively through cookies, um, et cetera, or if you simply collect information from them, maybe to send them uh, marketing material, email updates, new products, new services, 
anything like that, you're covered by GDPR, even if they never purchase anything from you. Right, right. Uh, Jeff, you've been trained in some of these various cybersecurity regulations, including uh, the New York DFS one, which we're receiving a lot of uh, calls on. What are some of the cybersecurity regulations that require the services of a CISO? Sure, uh, good, good question. So we've, we've mentioned uh, the New York State Department of Financial Services. That regulation is, is actually, the, the formal name of it is 23NYCRR500. Um, so it's cybersecurity for insurance, banking, and financial services. So uh, there smaller organizations with fewer than uh, 10 employees and, and under a certain revenue threshold are exempt from that. But by and large, the, the majority of banking, insurance, and financial services companies doing business in New York, even if they're located in Florida, it doesn't matter if they're licensed in New York, they have to meet um, the CISO role, whether they do that in-house uh, or whether they, uh, they uh, outsource it to, to a company who can help. Uh, GDPR doesn't explicitly say, hey, you need to have a CISO, but it does say you need to have a data privacy officer, uh, which is not quite a CISO role, but there is a lot of overlap in terms of, you know, their primary goal is reducing risk, protecting private data. So they really have the same agenda. They are slightly different. There are nuances between privacy and security, but at the end of the day, if you think about it like a Venn diagram, the, uh, the data privacy officer has quite a lot of overlap with what a CISO uh, would, would provide. Um, and then uh, the other one is uh, HIPAA, which has been around for well over a decade, um, is uh, any HIPAA covered entities are required by section 164.308, which is the HIPAA security rule, to identify what they call a HIPAA security officer. And that's somebody who's responsible for the development and the implementation of policies and procedures and this is, you know, verbiage right from HIPAA, to ensure the integrity of electronic protected health information. Well, what does that mean? Well, that, that, to me, means you need to have a CISO. Sometimes they call that a chief risk officer. I've, I've heard that when I visited different hospitals and healthcare facilities. You know, so it goes by different names. But at the end of the day, they're really trying to just do, the, do the, those two things, reduce risk and protect uh, private data. So those would be, again, New York State DFS, GDPR, HIPAA, and those are just three off the top of my head. Nice. Michael, I was wondering, you know, after the financial fallout, uh, you started to see major regulations, you know, Dodd-Frank, and all these things happen where the person in the company, maybe the CFO, right, in a publicly traded company, had to start making I guess, attestations to the validity or truthfulness of the data under penalty of law, right? Like you had people who could be held personally liable, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if, if there were certain irregularities or if the company ran afoul of the law. I'm wondering if, I, I think that's not in place now in terms of, you know, data breach, privacy laws, if you're a chief information officer or CISO. But I wonder if in the future we could see a trend towards more personal risk exposure for someone in that role. I mean, any thoughts on that? I expect to see it slowly happening. In the last financial crisis, 
as you know, there were lots of complaints that executives were getting off and right. in the financial sense, the new wave is clearly going to be data breaches. They're happening every day. Um, you're seeing most recently, I guess, maybe not most recently, but certainly with Uber, where there was information that was supposed to be private that was being used for improper purposes. And I think you're going to see that happening more and more. Um, same with uh, the analytics company. I'm drawing a blank on its name. Uh, Cambridge. Yes, Analytica. Cambridge Analytics. That was gathering data for one purpose and using it for something else. I think as those types of incidents continue to rise, you're going to see a need or a desire to hold individuals liable for those actions. I don't think you'll see it where the individual was careless or was just not being that smart, but I do think you'll see it where the individual was acting maliciously, um, whether it's separate criminal statutes holding them liable or built into the regulations themselves. Already, for example, with GDPR, uh, while not applicable here in the sense, in certain scenarios, you need a representative in the EU if you're a US company. That representative over in the EU, which could be a person, an individual, or an individual at a company, that representative can, in fact, be held personally liable for their own representations. Not for the bad acts of the company overseas, if the company does something, but if the representative makes a representation to government or entity investigating something, and that representation, based upon first knowledge, is wrong, that individual can be held individually liable. And I think as U.S. companies start to mimic somewhat, or I should say U.S. regulators start to mimic somewhat what's going on in the EU, I think you'll see some of that here. Uh, right now, a lot of the technology companies are getting together, saying we need a national law on this. They don't want GDPR. It's a little too strict for the businesses to promote because it limits what they can do. But they're pushing for a national law to cover this type of behavior, this type of business behavior. And I think eventually you will see some personal liability built in there. Yeah, yeah, the personal liability is an interesting topic because whether you're for or against it, I think skin in the game is better for consumers or people who are having their data possibly exposed, but it's uh, probably a topic for another video. Um, Jeff, going back to, you know, we touched on, on running a small business and, um, you know, sometimes uh, an organization just can't justify a full-time HR manager, so they outsource their HR maybe to a PEO like like we do here. Um, one of the big trends now is, you know, the phone will ring and someone will say, can you provide CISO as a service and, and check that box for me? Um, so, so tell us about CISO as a service. Right, uh, so CISO as a service is basically uh, taking that role and giving it to a third party. Uh, so just given the sheer cost of hiring a full-time CISO, it makes sense for companies to at least explore the option of an outsourced CISO. Um, again, like you, like you said, it, CISO as a service or fractional CISO is another way to put it. Um, one of the things I like about CISO as a service is, is oftentimes companies that, that do that they have a bench, so you're not just getting 
you know, a singular opinion from one person. You're getting sometimes a team of people with, with different vantage points. And so that can be valuable. Uh, and then CISO as a service offerings should start with, you know, when, when you, you engage a third party, if, if you decide to do that, you, sh you need to get a baseline. So that offering starts with doing an upfront risk assessment. And uh, you really, I always use the analogy, you don't, you can't get where you're going unless you know where you are, right? In Google Maps, you ha it has to figure out wh where are you located now to get your directions for you. So the same thing goes for CISO um, as a service. You need to have an upfront risk assessment performed by that company. And uh, that, get, that gives them the baseline of risk for your organization. It allows them to adjust your organization's risk appetite. Are you risk averse? Do you, uh, do, do you accept certain levels of risk in different areas? What's your mission statement? What's your vision? Where are you, where are you trying to get uh, in five years or 10 years? So taking all that as inputs, uh, the, the risk assessment is going to give you a risk baseline and help, help uh, understand where the organization wants to go from a leadership perspective. Um, and the, so the outsourced CISO is going to help your organization continually find opportunities to reduce risk. Right? We don't look at risk as, hey, shame on you, you did something wrong. We look at it as, hey, now that we know about it, there's an opportunity to do something about it. Um, and the CISO as a service offering should ultimately take everybody's stress away by collating and curating information about risk, remediation efforts, and the general effectiveness of your cybersecurity program. Without having this uh, service or this person tying it all together, it's all ad hoc, you don't know what's going on, and, and it, it's hard to really put a grade on how well you're doing. So this person is taking all the, the efforts of individual, you know, the IT folks who are doing the remediation, the people who are addressing different areas of risk. They're, they're gonna be talking to people in different departments about their general understanding about uh, policies and procedures and how well they're being followed. And the CISO as a service offering is really valuable because it ties all that stuff together. It makes it, uh, again, digestible by board. Um, or C-level folks, or people, president, owner, people who, who need to know about that stuff. Um, and if your organization is attacked, breached, or adversely affected in any way, it's the outsourced CISO's responsibility to report to the board. So that can take a lot of that stress uh, during a breach or after a breach. It can take that stress away because the CISO gets to sort of bear that, uh, bear that burden. Gotcha. Are there any regulations that you guys know of that maybe particularly say that CISO as a service is not going to fly? You have to have like a full-time equivalent doing that role? No, there's there's nothing at all that says you, you can't outsource it. Uh, but when you do outsource, you obviously have to pay attention. There has to be, you know, agreements in place, uh, regular reporting, uh, service level agreements or SLAs, uh, anytime anybody engages in, in a third party, whether it's your janitorial staff, whether you're, you're moving email to Office 365, whether you're outsourcing your IT, uh, in the example you used, you used earlier, outsourcing your HR, any of those times that there's a third party involved, there needs to be oversight. So the oversight's important, but there's nothing in terms of regulation uh, that says you can't outsource a CISO role. So it's perfectly acceptable in any geography, environment, or vertical to outsource that role if that makes sense financially for the company. And I'll add something to that. Because I agree with everything Jeff has just said on the last two questions. But 
to add to it, oftentimes outsourcing uh, a CISO is actually beneficial to the company. You wouldn't want to outsource the CEO as a general matter because you want somebody who's running the company with skin in the game. When you're dealing with privacy and security regulations, oftentimes uh, you want someone who doesn't have skin in the game. You want someone who's looking to protect the company from an objective viewpoint and to make sure the company's taken care of from an objective viewpoint. That's why in, in GDPR, when you have your privacy officer, the privacy officer has to be in a position separate, in essence, from the business people. You can't have the same role because it creates conflict of interest. I kind of look at outsourcing the CISO as the equivalent of having outside legal counsel. And no one looks at it and says, well, we only can have an inside in-house counsel because otherwise it doesn't make sense. You outsource legal work. Oftentimes, even if you have an inside counsel, you may have a GC, general counsel, and a whole team, but you still outsource a lot of legal work, particularly as a general matter when it comes to specialized work, so being specialized work. So the concept of outsourcing, not only isn't it barred by any law that I'm aware of, the whole idea of having, whether it's an individual or as Jeff mentioned, a team, or at least having a team who's ready if needed, can be more beneficial and more cost efficient oftentimes than having your in-house CISO. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, having, having been doing this for 20 years, I think the last thing anybody wants is um, the, the finger pointing when something really bad happens and everybody kind of just, you know, does the hot potato thing and says, well, I thought he was doing this and, she thought he was doing that, and I'm not really responsible for that. So I think the name of the game here with CISO or an outsourced CISO as a service is this person is totally responsible for these things. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so speaking of things going south, right, that's when we get the call sometimes, uh, and I'm sure, Michael, you, you feel the same something goes bad <clears throat> and you know the office of the inspector general has now knocked on the door and oh boy um everybody's on the hot seat so in that case of a substantial breach at a regulated company right it might be a hospital it might be um an insurance company it might be a financial services firm what is the CISO doing what are they responsible for Jeff? So, yeah, in, in the case of uh, the emotional, the irrational uh, is, is what happens during a breach, right? Everybody starts to freak out. Uh, in that case, it's the CISO's responsibility to add uh, the rational in and subtract the emotional out. And they're really, the way that they do that is by enacting the incident response plan. So the CISO, I said earlier, the, the first thing they're going to come in and do is, is a risk assessment of the organization as a whole. And based on that risk, based on the technical controls that are in place, they're also gonna build an incident response plan, hoping to never use it, but regularly reviewing it in case they do need to use it. We, we recommend once a year uh, doing tabletop exercises to review the incident response plan. So uh, again, the CISO it would enact the incident response plan. They'd work with individuals in IT, legal, and other departments to get the, the breach contained and to uh, reestablish services as, as promptly as possible. 
oftentimes people think about a breach as, oh, that's an IT problem. You know, I, it's a cyber breach, right? It came in through a computer, so that's an IT problem. They forget the fact that there, if there's regulations in play, it's a legal issue. Uh, they forget the fact that their reputation is at stake, so there may be a need to get messaging correct, right? Not, not to mislead people, but you don't, want, you don't want to be on the 6 o'clock news, and you certainly don't want uh, your, your employees on Facebook saying, hey, we just got breached, and uh, it's so bad and terrible and all this stuff. That's not, that doesn't look good for anybody, and it's not helpful. Uh, so the CISO is going to enact the plan, get uh, the appropriate teams uh, fired up, IT, legal, and whatever, whatever other departments need to be involved. They're going to, uh, they'd be the person who would communicate the breach to third parties. Uh, so in certain cases, the FBI needs to get involved, right? If there's, you know, money transfer or things like that, you know, the, the best practice is to contact the FBI. In certain cases, state and local police need to be uh, reached out to, often uh, the attorney general for a particular state, the Department of Health and Human Services, if it's healthcare, and then uh, going back to, the, to New York State, the, the DFS superintendent, if you're in banking, insurance or financial services so there's and if you don't know that in advance if you don't have that that plan in place you're not going to be acting uh, like i said earlier it's going to be emotional and irrational so the CISO is going to take take the heat off and just follow the plan it doesn't have to be difficult you just just follow the plan and after you're up and running and services are up and, and the data has been accounted for everybody's been reached out to the CISO is then going to be responsible for conducting a what we call a lessons learned exercise. So that's a post-breach uh, thing that, that everybody gets together to identify areas of weakness in their current security posture, because obviously if, if you got breached, there was a chink in, in the armor, right? So how do we avoid this from happening in the future? Did I have employees reaching out to the public where they shouldn't have? Uh, were there things that we could adjust or tweak to reestablish services more promptly next time? Right, so that lessons learned is also something that the CISO would host uh, after the fact of a breach. Yeah, anything to add to that, uh, Michael? Uh, Jeff fairly nailed it. I, mean, I think the key points here are going back to the concept of privacy design, a CISO being part of it. You need to have everything in place up front. So when and if a breach happens, and to be honest, I tell everybody, you will be breached. Everybody will be breached. Whether it's a breach that you know about, whether it's a breach that actually causes a problem because sensitive data is used, or it's just a breach by some hacker having fun or a government that you're never going to know about, will be breached. But you want to develop up front the concept of privacy by design with your business, and a CISO is obviously part of that. And then the, the key that Jeff mentioned there is an incident response plan. You need to have one in place. When these breaches happen, you often have obligations to take certain action within 24 to 48 hours, depending on uh, what regulation may govern you and whether you have contractual obligations that often shorten that time. Those steps that you take, those actions that you take immediately after a breach can be the most critical moments to your company. You go down the wrong avenue or you take the wrong step and it can be catastrophic. But in these scenarios, you don't have time to gather everyone together, gather the board and describe 
here's what happened, what did you do? Let's go out and start consulting people and do some research and figure that all out. You need to know almost instantly. You're literally talking 24 to 48 hours. And the last thing you want when you've been breached is to blow a regulation that may require you to contact people to provide notice, may require you to contact the government, or you may decide to contact the government to help um, in connection with your breach, depending on what it is. These aren't things that you can deal with afterwards. So having a CEO in place, whether in-house or outsourced, is critical. And you may be a huge company, you can have inside, have your in-house CISO. If you're not, there's really not an excuse anymore as outsourcing is becoming more and more common. 10 years ago, if we were having the same conversation, um, my response might be very different, but now there's really no excuse. And it's not just, I don't just say that as a lawyer saying from a legal perspective, it's a practical perspective. You're spending all your time and effort to grow and develop your business, to have it all go south because you don't take proper protective measures is ultimately somewhat irrational. Well, thank you guys for joining me. We'll have more videos to come. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing your insight today. So thank you. My pleasure. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to Privacy by Design. For more information, please visit us at pyregcompliance.com. That's P-I-R-E-G compliance.com. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes.